Well, hello. Good morning. I'm so glad you're able to brave the harsh and cold weather. Come out and study the book of Galatians with us. It's going to be fun. My name is James Green. I'm the teaching pastor here at Cape Bible Chapel. So if you have your Bible or you've got your tablet and a little Bible app, go ahead and join me, if you would, in Galatians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 6 to 10 today. If you are here last week, we looked at the first five verses in Galatians. We said what Paul was doing was setting up his defense before he's getting ready to go out on offense. And his defense was stout. It was really, really solid. He established that his credibility, the, the role that he had as an apostle, and the message that he was preaching, this gospel of grace, they came directly from the resurrected Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. So he had a solid, solid defense. And then he's going to go on offense today, and he is just blunt. He's just really straightforward with these churches in Galatia. Now, we're not a nation that relies on the barter system anymore. We probably have some experience with making a trade, right? And there's kids in elementary schools all across America, and they're trading half their PB&J for one of their buddies' Twinkies at lunch. When I was growing up, you used to trade sports cards. I don't think people do that anymore. But I know my kids, they trade Pokemon cards. You know? so, so we have some idea of how a trade is supposed to work. You know, the idea is that we swap something. We take something we have, we swap it for something else, and really, I guess we're saying that the thing somebody else has, we must see that as a little more useful, a little more valuable than the thing that we have. Now, the way the trade is ultimately evaluated is how that thing you got compares with the thing you gave away over time. So if you trade half of the peanut butter and jelly sandwich that your mother lovingly made for one of your buddy's Twinkies, and then you get done with lunch and you're ready to fire into that Twinkie and it's stale... You know, what if it was a Twinkie from the, before the world-renowned Twinkie shutdown from last year? You know, what if you got a really bad Twinkie? Well, then you got a bad deal. That turned out to be a bad trade. Well, starting out in our passage today, Paul is astonished by the Galatians because they're willing to make this horrible trade. They want to trade the opportunity to have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. They want to trade the grace of God for Jesus plus some legalism. Jesus plus keeping the Jewish law. This sounds like a bad trade to me. Now, back in 1964, my beloved St. Louis baseball Cardinals made a fantastic trade. They shipped starting pitcher Ernie Brolio and a couple other guys to the Chicago Cubs for a young outfielder named Lou Brock and a couple other players. I don't remember the other players. Brolio and Brock were the big names in this trade. Now, on paper, it might have looked like the Cubs were going to get a better deal out of this because Brolio at the time was a quality starting pitcher. He'd won 21 games back in 1960. He'd won 70 games over the prior five seasons. And Brock was a young outfielder. He was 24, and he'd hit just 260 over the prior two seasons. So it looked like it might be a bad trade for the Cardinals. You don't know. A couple months into the season, on June 15, 1964, the Cardinals traded Brolio for Brock. Now, I don't know. I don't know if they knew. Only God knows. Did the Cardinals know they were trading a stale Twinkie at the time? Because it turns out that Brolio's arm was shot. I mean, he won seven games. He lost 19 over the next two seasons. And by 1966, he was out of baseball. However, in 1964, after the Cardinals got Brock, he went on to hit 368 for the rest of the season. And the Cardinals won the National League pennant. They defeated the Yankees in the World Series. Great season for the Cardinals. And Brock was just getting warmed up. Brock went on to have a, a Hall of Fame career. Got over 3,000 hits. When he retired in 1979, he was the Major League Baseball all-time stolen base leader. In 1985, he was elected to the Hall of Fame. It's a good trade for the Cardinals. It's a bad, 
bad trade for the Cubs. Still to this day, this is widely recognized as the number one all-time worst trade in baseball. But that's with hindsight. That's the ability to look back on it. Even if the Cardinals knew that Brolio was done, they really they didn't have a crystal ball. They couldn't have known how good Brock was going to be. There's some things you can't know in a trade. But with some trades, there are some things you can know. So in Galatians chapter 1, here in verses 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul's saying, because of the defense he has established, because he knows he had tried to earn salvation before and couldn't do it, and then he received salvation by grace, he knows that this is a bad, bad trade that the Galatians are considering. He knows beforehand they're willing to swap the gospel of salvation by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ for what he calls a different gospel. A gospel that's just a little bit trickier. A gospel that would be a little bit harder to earn. So therefore, it must have been better. That gospel of grace, that's too easy. It's got to be some kind of catch. So the Galatians were willing to embrace this distorted gospel. And here's how Paul addresses it in verses 6 and 7. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. For what? For a different gospel. Which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul hears this news, and he says he's astonished. These folks that he loves, the Galatians, they're in the process of deserting the truth. Now the word that Paul uses here, deserting, it's a Greek word, metatithemi, and it literally means changing sides. These people weren't believers yet. They, they didn't truly have a relationship with Jesus, but they'd heard the gospel, and now they're abandoning it. And they're not just abandoning the gospel, they're going to subscribe to a false gospel. It's a military term for desertion that Paul uses. It implies more than just going AWOL. It means you'd go AWOL and then you'd actually go to the enemy camp. And Paul is just saddened that this is happening so fast. He had just been with these folks planting these churches. And now they're hearing this perverted gospel and it's almost as soon as the false teachers are rolling it out, it seems like they want to buy into it. Does that seem weird to us? That the Galatians would abandon the truth so quickly? Take a look at Exodus chapter 32 and verse 1. We'll have these up on the screen for you. And we'll see how long it took God's chosen people to desert camp and change teams back in the Old Testament when Moses was their leader. reads, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come make us a God who will go before us. As for this man Moses who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Exodus chapter 24 and verse 18 says Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. If we're not really secure in what we believe, if we haven't established a good defense, we're just toying around with faith, doesn't take very long to change sides, does it? But the thing that Paul makes so apparent here is that this desertion that the Galatians are thinking about is bad because it wasn't just that they were rebelling from a belief system or a theological viewpoint, they were willing to desert God himself. They were willing to desert the God who was going to make a way by his will of decree for them to have a real relationship with him. They were turning away from Jesus, from the God who sent the way for sinful people to be reconciled. And we said last week, it's God's will of desire that everyone would be reconciled. Everyone would receive that gift of grace, of salvation that comes through faith in Jesus. But they're willing to trade that for a golden calf, for a stale Twinkie, 
for a perverted gospel that said, sure, Jesus is nice, but you've got to become Jewish to really get it. And they're willing to make this trade. I mean, forget Brock Fabrolio. This is the worst trade ever. It'd be bad enough to reject the gospel that Paul was sharing, but they were willing to reject that and trade for a false gospel. Not a better gospel, not a better alternative, but a perversion of the truth that was basically this Jesus plus something else gospel. And this is the key for us because this is huge. This is where we see the nature of false teaching. For there to be false teaching, there first has to be what? True teaching. And then as soon as the truth is told, that's when somebody comes along and they try to confuse the message or distort the truth. And it's going to happen every time because of the reality of Satan in this world. Because the reality of our fallenness, our sin condition. We're sinful people. Last week Paul said we live in this present evil age. And our enemy loves nothing more than twisting and distorting the truth. In the Gospel of John in chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus explains this to some folks who are there and they want to kill him. And so he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth. Why? Because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar, the father of lies. So if we're Christ followers, we're going to have to deal with this in our lives. I guarantee we're going to encounter false teaching. And so we need to be well prepared to stand in the truth and defend the truth. Who's going to help us with that? Who's going to help us set up our defense and then know how to go on offense? It's Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. When you're in church, somebody asks you a question. If you're not sure, just say Jesus. It's hard to go wrong. I was sitting here last week. You guys maybe were here. Dan asked from the stage when he was doing the announcements, hey, what do we call that big room across the lobby with the basketball goals in it? I knew the answer, but I was real tempted to say Jesus. That's just the thing we say. Jeremy shared with me there was a kid back in kids' worship a couple weeks ago, and, and there was a whole bunch of them in there, probably 70, 80 kids in there, and he asked a question of all the kids. He said, hey, tell me what kind of animal is gray or sometimes they're brown, got a big bushy tail, you know, and the kids are just staring at him. They don't, they don't answer. He's like, well, you know, you know, they store up nuts. They eat nuts, and they store them up for the winter. They live in trees. They hang out at the park. Nothing. You know, the, kid, the kids are saying nothing. And he's like, come on, kids, you know the answer to this. And finally, one little boy raises his hand in the back. He goes, I don't know, Pastor Jeremy, sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. Jesus is always the answer. He's the one that God sent to save us. And that's why Paul is just so dumbfounded that the Galatians want to join the other camp. They want to join the Jesus plus camp. And so he says in verse 6, you're deserting him. They don't have a real relationship with Him yet, and they're willing to desert Him. They're deserting God. And the grace of God found in Jesus Christ for what? For a different gospel. They're not just ignoring the message, they're also ignoring the messenger. Now why would we do that? Why did they do that back then? If we know that Jesus is always the answer, why are we sometimes afraid to give the answer? I think sometimes it's because we think we're going to offend somebody. Or maybe we're intimidated by people or circumstances. And I think sometimes we really desire to be truthful, but in the end we end up soft-selling Jesus. Sometimes we end up preaching a version of the gospel that's just a little less offensive than the one that says we'll all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Wow, talking about sin, that's, 
That's pretty harsh. Couldn't we just say God loves you and He has a great plan for your life? I mean, that's nicer, right? And technically it's true. So, so could we just present the gospel without having to deal with this sin issue? Here in Galatians, Paul is blunt. He's shared the true gospel. Now he just smacks these folks in the face with his words. He says, I'm amazed you'd be willing to make such a foolish trade. Now, does he say that because he doesn't like them? No. He says it because he loves them. He wants everybody to be in God's will of desire. He wants them to accept the gift of grace. So he challenges them. If I would see my youngest boy, Trace, he's eight. If I'd see Trace playing in the street and there was a car barreling down at him, what do you think I'd do? Would I say, oh, Trace, honey, you need to move out of the way? Or would I yell at the top of my lungs, get out of the street! Would I be willing to run and go tackle Trace and knock him out of the way? Here's the reality. If I would tackle Trace on the concrete, I'd hurt him. I'm a pretty big boy. I'd take him down. But, but if the other option was he's going to get run over by a car, don't you think Trace would take the scratches and the bruises? We've got to be on the lookout for false gospels. They're dangerous. Most of the ones I've seen recently come from this notion of trying to make the gospel less offensive. They come from trying to be innovative. Now hear me clearly on this because I have absolutely nothing against innovation. New technology, new stuff, new approaches, they can be great. They truly can. The big worry is always about the method we use to share the message. If we don't worry as much about the, mes- the method, but we worry about the message more, if we concern ourselves with the truth, then we can use any method we want. I'm fine with changing the methods. There's a certain approach that uh, appeals to a particular demographic, then by all means, knock yourself out as long as we don't change the message. Because we'll always get in trouble if we try to become creative and how we present the message of the gospel. Let me just clear the air on this right now. There's no way to make the gospel message less offensive. If we get to the opportunity to share with somebody, hey, you're a sinner and in need of a Savior, there's no good way to sugarcoat that. Now, I think we can. I think we should be loving in how we say that. I'm a huge fan of relational evangelism methods where we win the right to tell somebody that, but we can't change the message. So let's be really practical and ask, where do we see distortions of the gospel message today? If we were out looking for big false gospel, perversions of the gospel message, I think there are two that are especially dangerous. Now, sadly, there's a lot of them out there. But there's two that we will see a lot of, and I want to focus on these because Paul covers these in the book of Galatians. And the first he's already addressing is this Jesus plus idea. I don't know, that idea that we've received salvation just by putting our faith in Jesus, that sounds a little too easy. So we hear that, and we try to help God out a little bit. We want to make grace seem a little less preposterous. We try to lessen just the sheer ridiculousness of God offering grace to folks who clearly don't deserve it. So we say, hey, in addition to the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, you've got to add something in. That's what the Judaizers did. They said, well, you've got to be circumcised. And today we might hear, well, you know, in addition to Jesus, you've got to be baptized. In addition to Jesus, you've got to stop sinning. You have to tithe. Whatever thing that we would add in, well, if we, if we say, hey, if you just do those things, then God will save you through Jesus plus those other things. Well, when we subscribe to that kind of false gospel, as if I could do anything that would earn my salvation, then what am I really trusting in? Am I trusting in Jesus or those other things? 
And if I'm trusting in the other things, then I've already bought on to a perverted gospel. So that's one different gospel that we see. And I think one of the other, and Paul deals with this later in the book, huge distortions of the gospel, is this idea that we say, yeah, I was saved by grace, that's incredible, so now I can do whatever I want, and God will have to forgive me. So that's a real perversion of the gospel message as well. But sadly, I know folks, I, mean, I don't know that they'd admit it if I asked them, you know, but if they were on a lie detector test or they were hopped up on some kind of truth serum, I think they'd say, yeah, that's how I see the gospel. I go to the church on the weekend, and I, I hear somebody preach, and I sing a few songs, and then I go home and I can do whatever I want for the rest of the week. Because I don't really know Jesus. I don't really have a relationship with him. I got some fire insurance because I said a prayer one time. But I don't have any conviction over my sin. I don't have any remorse about the way that I live my life or the decisions I make. I'm all good. Just think about what that kind of gospel would look like if it was illustrated in parenting. What if kids said, well, my parents love me, and they're my parents, so I can do whatever I want. I do a lot of drugs. I'm in a physical relationship with my girlfriend. I cheat. I steal. It's all good. It's cool because my parents love me and they've got my back. What if you'd go to the parents and they'd say, well, yeah, I want to love my child well, so I won't give them any punishment. There won't be any repercussions for disobedience. I'm certainly not going to equip them. I'm just going to forgive them for all the bad stuff because I love them so much. Is that really love? I mean, that sounds like a wicked parent to me. That, that's a bad parent. That's a perversion of the gospel. Do we think that God desires that kind of relationship with us? Paul deals with this often in the Bible. For lots of people in this world, the gospel of grace has no real bearing on their lives whatsoever because they're pretty sure they can go to church and then leave, and then leave Jesus at the church. So the reality, just the incredible freedom that comes from a real relationship with Christ is truly unavailable to them because they bought in to this false gospel. And that's Paul's concern for the Galatians. They don't really even know Jesus yet, but they're willing to trade him for something else. They want to switch teams. For sure, there are lots of people rejecting true gospel messages, and that's sad. But I'm just as certain that there are folks who are trading the true gospel for one of these false gospels. And in some ways, that's worse, if you think about it, because those folks who've made the trade, they think they're okay. They think they have eternal life because they professed this false gospel. And they're really in a much worse position because they won't be looking for Jesus. They think they already have him. No. You got a stale Twinkie. You traded for Ernie Brolio. You got the bad end of the trade. You ended up with a perverted gospel. And Paul's fired up about that because he cares for these people. So to emphasize that the true gospel of grace can't be changed, can't be added to, Paul throws out a hypothetical scenario with a very severe warning in verse 8. Then he expounds on it in verse 9. He says, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you already, he is to be accursed. And as we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. This is hypothetical, and Paul digs down deep, and he's trying to come up with the most unlikely scenario he can imagine. So he says, what if, what if I, what if me and Barnabas, what if me and the people I was with, what if we started preaching a false gospel? Or what if it was even stranger than that? He says, what if an angel showed up and preached just a slightly different gospel message? 
What if the gospel was tweaked just a little bit? And so now the message is not the audacious nature of God's grace. It's God plus just a little bit of keeping the law. Well, Paul says if that would happen, then that person or that angel should be eternally condemned. And most likely, Paul's not thinking about an angel like we like to think about, sits on our shoulder, reminds us of the good things to do. I think he's thinking about the other kind of angel that sits on the other shoulder. I think Paul is thinking about a demon here. Are there demons in this world that are inspiring false teachers to proclaim false gospels? You bet there are. As weird as it would be if an angel showed up and proclaimed a message to you, you can't just go, well, it was an angel, you know, so I had to listen to what they had to say. I don't think that's accurate at all. This happens to you and an angel shows up, ask him about Jesus. Jesus is always the answer. This is how Mormonism got started. Joseph Smith said, well, an angel showed up, he gave me a different gospel. Remember, false teaching comes from true teaching. False teachers just twist it a little bit. They distort it. They, they, they pervert it just a little bit, and then it's false. It's pretty easy to see some examples of this. because Satan does it right in the Bible. When he tempts Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, what does he say? Look at Genesis 3.1 up on the screen. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And so he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, do we think Satan doesn't really know what God said? No, Satan knows the Bible. So he takes what God did say, you can eat freely of any tree, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he twists it just a little bit. And what does Eve do? She falls for it. She gets confused, and then she distorts what God said too. Look at verses 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Now, did God say Adam and Eve couldn't touch it? No, she twisted it just a little bit. Because Satan, who's the father of lies, he confused her and he distorted God's word just a little bit. So that's what he sets out to do. <laughs> Satan, his demons, they know God's word. And that is one of the huge reasons we need to know God's word. We need to have that solid defense so we can stand firm in the truth. If you need a good example of this, read on your own Matthew 4 sometime this week. Satan foolishly tries to do the same thing with Jesus in Matthew 4. He tries to pervert the truth. Go back and read that account. In verse 6 of chapter 4, Satan quotes God's word to Jesus like Jesus didn't know it already. And Jesus stands strong even in that trial, even when he was weak. From having fasted for 40 days, he stood firm because he had the most solid defense ever. And that's what allowed him to go on offense so well. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says in part, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. See, Satan knows that the Bible, he knows God's word is a two-edged sword. And so he knows if we don't know how to use it, he can pick it up and cut us with it. That's why we need to be good with the sword. The sword is good for defense and offense. So Paul says to the Galatians, even if an angel or a demon shows up and they quote you some verses, ask them about Jesus. And if the answer is not the truth, it says then they're bound for destruction. Paul uses this Greek word anathema, and it's a heavy word. It indicates something that is not dedicated to God's honor. It's the opposite. It is instead 
intended to its own destruction. This is the strongest possible way Paul could have said, if you preach something other than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you're nullifying the work that Jesus completed on the cross, and there are going to be eternal consequences. Paul's saying just as sternly as he can, don't mess with the message. And in addition, and I can't prove this, but it seems to me from the way he's responding, like Paul is dealing with the fact that these Judaizers were probably coming through and saying, well, that grace that Paul's talking about, that's just his take on that. That's just the gospel of Paul. And so Paul broaches this hypothetical situation to argue the fact that the source of the message really doesn't matter. It's always the content of the message that's crucial. Then in verse 9, at first glance, it may seem like Paul's just repeating himself. Sometimes we do that to get attention, right? Sometimes we do that to get attention, right? But I don't truly think that's what's happening here. I think Paul and his companions have given this warning before. I think this came probably when they were face-to-face with the Galatians when they were planning the churches. So verse 9 is not hypothetical anymore. Because Paul's saying, if anybody comes and preaches a different gospel to you, which is, of course, what the Judaizers were doing, he says, then that person or those people, they're going to come under God's eternal judgment. Paul's saying those people are destined for eternal destruction. Now, we've already looked at Paul's background a little bit, and we're going to dig in even deeper in a couple weeks after Disciple Now. We talked about how zealous a guy Paul was when he was Saul of Tarsus. Paul explains in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4 that if anybody could have been saved by doing good works, it was him. But works didn't save him. God's grace did. And so Paul got that head start on us on understanding grace when he personally met the resurrected Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. And from that point on, he understood what Christ's death accomplished. He gets that Christ's death is the debt that paid our sin and set free grace. Well, once we understand that, especially the way Paul did, then any false gospel presentation becomes really, really dangerous. Because when the gospel is perverted, and all of a sudden we don't see that way of salvation, we don't understand the path of reconciliation, it's distorted, well then people who are lost are in danger of being eternally lost. Eternally lost. Paul wouldn't stand for it. Will we stand for it? Do we get as fired up as Paul when we hear a false gospel presentation? Some people read this, and I know they're offended by how blunt Paul is here. Because he basically says, if you're preaching a false gospel, you're in trouble. And we're talking about eternal destruction. Maybe there's some more loving ways to say that, I'll grant you. Maybe there are. But we've got to ask ourselves, am I willing to scream to get somebody's attention if they're in danger? Would I be willing to run and tackle somebody out of the way? if it would save their lives. And personally, I think it's easy to give Paul a little slack here because what he's saying is, even if it's me, Paul says, if I start preaching a false gospel, then I should be accursed. And that really resonates with me because God has given me this huge responsibility to open up his word and teach people every week. And if I would stand up here and pervert the gospel, I would pray that you would come and confront me about it. I hope you'd be loving, but you know, if you have to yell at me to keep me from being accursed, I'd be okay with that. I pray you'd come and call me on it. I know in my heart that the elders of this church would, because those guys take very seriously this instruction to guard against false teaching. But honestly, I hope it wouldn't have to be them. I hope it would be all of you. I don't want you to just sit out there and go, well, whatever James said, I'm sure that's good. 
I'm begging you, don't do that. Check the things I say out in the Bible. And if I say anything that's not accurate, you can throw it out. And if I would stand up here and preach a false gospel, you can throw me out, please. That's why we want you to have a Bible. I want you to read it and study it like we talked about last week. Observation, interpretation, correlation, application to see if I'm proclaiming the truth. And I need to be especially clear about this because the reality is that the greatest danger to the truth, the greatest danger to the gospel message is probably not going to come from outside these walls. I think the greatest threat to the gospel will always come from those who are close to it because they know true teaching and they try and pervert it. And Paul agrees with me on this because he says so in Acts chapter 20. He's getting ready to leave the church in Ephesus. And he's saying goodbye to the elders there. And this is what he says, starting in verse 28. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, Speaking perverse things. Why? To draw away the disciples after them. We need to be willing and able to defend the truth. It's one of our strong, strong desires here at Cape Bible Chapel. Finally, Paul concludes with this in verse 10. He says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, he says, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now, I think that the way that's worded says there'd been an accusation there. He says, am I now seeking the favor of men? Seems to indicate that these false teachers must have been accusing Paul of teaching freedom in Christ, teaching freedom from the law in order to tickle the ears, these Gentile, in order to, to win their approval. So the Judaizers are saying, hey, the reason Paul came through and he didn't tell you about the circumcision thing is because that's not a real popular message for grown men, if you know what I mean. He left that part out. And this is funny to me because Paul taught the true gospel. I mean, he, he didn't skip the offensive part at all. He taught, hey, we're sinful. And because of our sin nature, we're separated from God. And unless we have a Savior, we're destined for eternal separation. He taught that part. But then he also taught the ridiculous part of the gospel. He taught about God's grace. He taught about God's undeserved favor. Motivated by His love and mercy, set free on the cross because of what Jesus did paying the debt for our sins. Because of that, we can receive grace if we accept God's gift by placing our faith in Jesus. So Paul hadn't left anything out, but these false teachers come and accuse him of compromising the gospel to win friends and influence people. That's what they were doing, not Paul. Maybe you struggle with this, like I do, with being a people pleaser. I've, I've always struggled with this. I really want people to like me. Christina always gets on me about this with our kids because she's so great and she really tries to help us eat healthy and not have a lot of sugar or whatever. And I'll go pick the kids up from school and I'll bring them home and they'll have like a soda and a candy bar. You know, We'll walk through the door and she'll just glare at me. I'll be like, hey, kids' love was for sale and I was buying. I want them to like me. And I know I'm not supposed to do that, but I do it. I struggle with that. I'm bad with people sometimes too because I have insecurity issues. I want people to like me. But I think I'm getting better in this area. You know what's made the difference? You do know. Jesus. Jesus is always the answer. Because I read His Word. 
And in it, He speaks to me. The Bible doesn't save us. We understand that, right? Jesus saves us. But we read His Word. Why? Because of what He said in John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40. It says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you might have eternal life. No. It is these that testify about Me. And you're unwilling to come to Me so that you may have life. This is why Paul is so fired up about this bad trade the Galatians were willing to make because they were going to desert Jesus. They didn't truly know Him yet. They just knew about Him. But before they even knew Him, they're willing to make this horrible trade for a false gospel. I can choose in my life to try and please God or I can choose to try and please people, but I can't do both. Scripture's really clear. We can't serve two masters. Now, one choice is going to be tougher than the other normally. But one choice is clearly better. It's a better trade if we just stop and think big picture about it. Okay, I could choose to please man, to try and make somebody happy and displease Jesus. Or I can, I can choose to honor God and please Jesus, and I may end up making somebody unhappy. Which of those is a better choice? I want to please Jesus. I, I know I mess it up. But that's what I want to do. Last week I met with a couple, and they wanted me to perform their wedding. There's a couple that I've known for a long time. They're a young couple. But they were young life kids of mine a long time ago. And so they came to meet with me, and it was, it was a little tricky because I already had some baggage. I, I, as much as I can know, I knew that one of them was a believer. I can't see hearts, but, I, but I'd led this person to the Lord. God used me to, to draw them to himself. And so I, I knew their testimony. But the other person, I, I didn't know as well, and, and I wasn't sure. So anytime somebody comes to meet with me to get married, I, I ask to hear their testimonies. And this one person shared they knew the Lord, loved the Lord, and the other person shared they didn't. And so I was in a tough spot. And so I just told him straight up, here, here's the deal, I can't perform your wedding. <laughs> because in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, it says you shouldn't yoke together a believer with an unbeliever. Don't have to believe me on it, check it out. But there I was in a tough spot. I said, because of my desire to please Jesus, I can't perform your wedding. Now I've had to tell people this before. And it's not gone well. It, it never goes well because people get really offended. And I understand, and they call me judgmental, and I've had people storm out of my office, and it's hard because I want people to like me. Here in this situation, it was funny. The unbeliever said, I can respect that. He said, actually, I, I'm really thrilled to hear that because that's one of the big problems I have with religion is that people will say one thing, and then they'll do another thing. I respect that. So that, that worked out well for me, but, but the idea is it wouldn't have mattered. I mean, that was a good moment, but whether that person liked me or not, I had to do the thing that was going to please Jesus in that situation. So here in verse 10, Paul makes it clear, he's not sharing the gospel of grace, which sounds ridiculously, audaciously wonderful. He's not sharing that to try and win friends and influence people. He says, if I was trying to do that, then do you think I'd be proclaiming God's eternal condemnation? on people sharing a false gospel in verses 8 and 9? When we see the Apostle Paul in God's Word, we see him as a leader. He's planting churches. He's a disciple maker. That part's obvious. But what he says here makes it real clear. He's only a leader because he's a servant of Christ. Paul calls himself a really neat Greek word here, a doulos, a bond servant. That term literally means a willing slave of Jesus Christ. Now, he may refer to himself that way to set up the contrast that he's going to write about in these later chapters where he talks about the freedom that comes from being a slave to Jesus. He may be referring to that paradox 
that real freedom is found in bondage to Christ. But for sure, we see in this debate over whether to please men or please Jesus, Paul's going to choose Jesus. And that's a good choice. So that's Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. Paul jumps out on his offense and he says, you want to trade the gospel of grace for legalism? That's a bad trade. And then he warns with a severe warning, don't listen to false teaching. And finally, he instructs us, we need to please God, not men. Next week, we're going to have our Disciple Now service, but two weeks from now, we're going to jump back in, start at Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. We're going to get to close our service today by taking communion together. I think that's always such a beautiful thing, because when we take the Lord's Supper, we have the opportunity to pause and truly remember what the gospel's all about. I'm going to take the communion elements and remember they're symbolic of Christ's body and blood, which he gave for us on the cross so that we would all have the opportunity to receive grace when we put our faith in him. And as sad as it is to say, I'm embarrassed to stand up here and say it, I don't know why, but sometimes I forget that. I need that reminder. I wish it wasn't true, but I forget what God has done, or at least I act like I've forgotten it. I forget what Christ has accomplished. So we're going to take the time today in Scripture. It says we can examine our hearts and confess our sins. We can be right with God. If you're new here at the chapel, Ryan's going to come and he'll play a little music and the communion elements are on the tables around you. And so you'll have time to do that. Examine your heart. Be right with God. Then you can come, take the elements. And after that, we'll sing. We'll worship again together before I come back up and give some announcements. But let me pray the bread and the cup. Father God, thank you for this letter to the Galatians that we get to study, that we get to dig into. God, help us to learn. Help us to apply We need to be on the lookout for false gospels, Lord. We need to make sure when we get the chance to present the gospel, we are presenting the truth, God, that it's all you, and that grace is ridiculous in its nature. We could have something that comes from you because of you sending your son Jesus that we didn't deserve or earn. God, help us to present that well. God, we love you. Thanks for this opportunity to commune with you, to be with you sense your presence and your peace in our lives. God, we just lift this day to you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.